That's right, Grandma. Welcome to the Derek Pernasiglio Show. I am Derek Pernasiglio. We've got a great show lined up for you this afternoon. Great guests coming in. So much history in this guest and a great storyteller, too. His father was in the, is in the National Sprint Car Hall of Fame. His grandfather is also in the National Sprint Car Hall of Fame, racing the Indy 500 for years. And his father was a car builder, fabricator, and now you're a car builder and fabricator yourself. Andy Stapp, thanks for joining us, buddy. Thank you for having me. It's pretty neat to be on this situation right here. I'm digging it. Cool. Well, it's great to have you on. And what people really don't realize is how much history you have in this sport. Not just you, but your whole family. I mean, your grandfather raised at Indy back in the 20s when it was still the Brickyard. Yes. We have a picture of him where he jumped in a guy's sprint car bobber when Eddie Rickenbacker was actually laying out and building the track at Indy. He jumped in the guy's... Uh, Bob Ricard put on a pair of aviator goggles and was running laps around the track, just checking it out, giving him feedback, and just he was like the first guy to run around Indianapolis Motor Speedway because somebody had a sprint car nearby, a little Bob Ricard. He jumped in and went out and checked it out. So and that's the way you used to be able to do it back in the good old days. You know, it was partially constructed bricks in some places, it was dirt in others, and he went out and made a few laps. So before the Indy 500 ever happened, he he turned laps on it. Yes, before the track was ever built. He was, while they were still in construction, he went out and played around in this bobber. Just, um, and a bobber is a, like a um, early Ford, no tail tank. It didn't look like a modern day sprint car. I sent you one of the pictures of it. It's in, in there somewhere. Um, but it's just a cool old narrow hard rubber tire wire wheel. Just basically take the horses off the carriage, put an engine in and go play. And that's what the car was. And he jumped in and ran some laps early on. You know, just just looking at those cars back in the day, (laughs) those guys were crazy. Cloth helmets, no seat belts. I mean, just racing on, what'd you say, brick and dirt? Oh, yeah, at that time, the whole, the reason they call Indy the Brickyard was the whole track was built with bricks. Right. Two and a half miles of racetrack, it was all just laid out bricks. Mm -hmm. Now that's, that's a big change from the boards that they ran on before this. I mean, Altoona, Pennsylvania, uh, there were quite a few board tracks all over the country, coast to coast. There were these huge one-and-a-half-mile, two-and-a-half-mile board tracks with huge banking, 12-foot-tall story right. tall or twelve story tall uh, banking in the corners built like an old wooden roller coaster. I've seen and, video of it. Yeah, the, I mean, staggering. I, we were looking at one earlier today, a video of them at breakfast this morning. And they were turning like ridiculous speeds too because racing on a wood surface. Right? Uh, the wood surface had very little friction and the things would just flat roll around or you're on little narrow tires and they'd run, they were running 100, 120 mile an hour on the board tracks back in those days. In the 20s. In the 20s. 120 mile. <laughs> With no seat belts, no nothing. And when you crashed, I have a picture in my phone I just found yesterday of a car that went over the guardrail and out and where it went out it was a 14 story drop or 12 story drop to the ground and the car was another 200 feet 300 feet well maybe let's go 200 yards from where he went off the banking at the top to where the car ended up i kind of got to figure he didn't he didn't survive it mm-hmm. i think the heart attack on the fall down would have killed me <laughs> off but uh yeah one of the gruesome like pictures staggering but that's the way things were back then yeah, it was it was way more life risking back then. Those tough SOBs wanted to race. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were they were serious about it, and a lot of them didn't go home. Yeah. But there was always somebody standing there with a 
uh, you know, a helmet or going to find a helmet to fill their place and go again. Now, you never saw your grandfather race or anything like that, right? Never saw him race, no. Okay. I was 14 when he passed away. Oh, all right. I got you. And so how did you, how did you go from California to Indiana? How did, how did that all happen? I say now that my dad was a huge visionary. He realized just how screwed up California was getting in the 70s and decided it was no place to raise kids and a family. Um, now they've proved it right. But uh, he moved out of there, and uh, we moved to Indiana in 1971. Now, prior to that, we, we were going back east racing like a band of gypsies in a pickup truck with a camper on the back of it, back and forth. But my little sister was born in 71, my sister Susanna. And at that point, they decided it was time to relocate back to the Midwest where things were a whole lot more normal. And it was the central for all the racing we were doing. It's kind of tough to tote from California back to the Midwest, go all the way to the Syracuse and go to New York and go you know, all over the eastern seaboard as well. When you're from California, it's a pretty lengthy tow. But when you're centrally based in Indiana, it took you know, half of that trip away from it. So racing has always been the family business then. Your dad, when you were born, was was racing. There was no like business that he had and then went racing on the weekends. It was Monday through Friday doing something associated with the sport. Yes. Yeah. Okay. We That's kind of a really cool thing with us um, steps is we're really opposed to any kind of real job. <laughs> so we're really good at racing because we're too afraid to steal and um, too lazy to work hard. So you kind of got to go racing, and that's the only fill-in in between. But uh, And I know it's a lot of work to race. But, yes, he had uh, dad-built cars for people, he, uh, for all different customers. I mean, he had cars coast-to-coast coast in, uh, in the 60s. He was building race cars for guys. And he'd go home to California. My granddad had an air conditioning shop in Hollywood. West Hollywood, and it was an eight-bay air conditioning shop. And my dad had a bay and a half and a fab area in the end of it. So, I mean, you got to consider something. My grandpa was putting air conditioning in cars in the 40s for the movie stars in California, in Hollywood. But about the time they put windows in them, he was putting <laughs> air conditioning in them. And houses the, weren't retro, Retrofitting them. Well, creating like, air conditioning units to put in them before the factories came out with air conditioning in cars. Oh, he was wow. air conditioning cars before it was... He had to custom build some stuff. Yes, before wow. you could buy them from... And, I mean, really, back then, you didn't have your Chevrolet. You had Duesenberg. You had Packard. Okay. You had car companies that weren't like your standard go-to-a-dealership, buy a Ford. Things were a little bit different back then. And he was... Yeah, they, they were putting air conditioning in things for the for the elite in California. So my grandpa, when he raced, his crew chief... I had it just a second ago. <laughs> Age will do that, huh? Yeah. Oh, God. His crew chief was a gentleman named Cotton Henning. Okay. And the two of them were like Mutt and Jeff. They were inseparable. Cotton's brother was a promoter, was a producer in Hollywood. He did little shows that very few people would know about. Gilligan's Island, the Beverly Hillbillies, the Monkees. Was this that picture that you're showing me with the overturned race car and it was on a movie set or something back in the 20s or 30s? Yes. I remember you showing me this picture. I forgot. it. Through all these connections, my grandpa, there was a Clark Gable movie, To Please a Lady. Uh, okay. And my grandpa was one of the motorsports, what do they call him? Basically, he was technical director from the motorsports side for the movies. Technical consultant he, or something? Technical consultant, okay. yes. He would give them, he would tell them when things were right and were wrong. And that picture I showed you, the car's on its side, a bunch of people standing around it. It doesn't even have a drive shaft in it. It's all laid over. Right, right. Um, 
if you can edit this in, you can put that picture in a little while because it's in all the ones I sent you. But it's so cool because they have all these people and they're holding the car up to keep it from scuffing. This guy's really nice indie race car, but and then the driver's laying on the ground in front of it. And it's all in the movie set. My grandfather is about mid-engine of the car wearing a boil fire suit. It has a triangle on the front, so boil. And that was Iron Mike Boyle. He was a, um, let's say, uh, he was a Teamsters union manager for the <laughs> Teamsters electric union, uh, the electric, yeah, electricians union in Chicago. Uh-huh. And the guy had a pretty moderate salary, and he had a two and a three car IndyCar team, shops and everything in Indianapolis that was like quad, well, 20 times what his salary was. So Iron Mike had some pretty cool stuff going on because he figured out how to get enough money to go racing right. <laughs> I don't know, legal, illegal, I'm not going to say because hey, I wasn't there. But, uh, you know, man had some really, Umbrella Mike, they called him Iron Mike. He had a couple different nicknames, but uh, Boyle was, and that shop is getting restored in Indianapolis now. Really? Uh, a couple of the cars are restored. Roy Carruthers is involved with a lot of that stuff going on up there. Mm-hmm. And they have restored one of the haulers from that era. And it's like a straight truck like a in between a semi and a basically like a top kick truck that you have now penske rental truck mm-hmm. with a flatbed on the back of it sides on it the cars rolled up onto it so they rolled out of the shop rolled up onto this truck and went to the cross town to the speedway which not wasn't very far away because that shop was just off 16th street down by ralph smuffler shops oh my God. so kind of historic neat area and neat stuff going on so all that um cotton henning like I say, his brother produced all these things. So Buddy Epson was in my grandpa's air conditioning shop pretty regularly, would come in, hang out with him. Wow. And this other really cool guy named James Garner used to come by and hang out just because he liked listening to the stories and liked the old racing history. And then he kind of made it famous between Rockford Files and uh, Grand, Grand, Prix. Prix Grand Prix and all his other, yeah, 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 super neat guy. I've got a few pictures of the two of them hanging out and sitting there talking and smiling and having a good time. For those of you who are just tuning in, Andy Stapp joins us in the studio. And we're going to change gears really quick. I talked to your sister. I dug up a little bit of dirt on you. (laughs) She has all of it. She has a much better memory than I do, too. Yeah. Um, Okay, you got to tell me the story of being nicknamed 24 Laps. So she told me about, about 10 or 11 different instances where you could lead... 24 perfect laps in a main event and and step right on my pecker with both feet and drive (laughs) off top of the racetrack. I'm going to tell you something. That was just a blood pressure test on my dad just to see if his heart and his blood vessels were working well because I could run off top of the racetrack and I don't even know where he was in the facility and I could see him blow up from there. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine what the rides home were like. Oh, unbearable. (laughs) There are so many of them that were totally unbearable. Uh, I could, yeah, I I could do that in, uh, it's like it was just this runoff in the corner and just miss the entrance to the corner by just a touch and not get rotated enough. Yeah, not long ago, Facebook is a mean thing. <laughs> the video showed up. I was qualifying at Bloomington. First lap was really good. Sailed off into on the second lap, missed just a little bit going into one and right rear hook. And that baby stood up and went off the end and. I was like, yeah, it brought back really bad memories. <laughs> I could do that at Lawrenceburg. Thank God, and to and explain it too. A lot of our racetracks in Indiana where we grew up racing, Paragon, Bloomington, Lawrenceburg, uh, Gas City, uh, most of them did not have an outside wall. So when you ran in on the cushion and you're up at the top, and I mean, it's each lap's 
you got to be really consistent and focused the whole time. There's grass when, after the cushion. There's grass. There's down. It's <laughs> ditch. There's all kinds of stuff out there. But when you screw up, you just drive right off the top of it and get the baby turn and come back on the backstretch. But half the field's gone by by the time you get back to the track. So yeah, who you can be leading and sail it off the top and. Holy cow, big guy was pissed. And I was too, but <laughs> it didn't matter how pissed I was. He had me covered. Susanna told me that, what was it? It was usually Kokomo that had happened or Bloomington. Whatever was a two-hour ride back to the shop. And she, she said that if it was silent back to the shop, it was two hours of getting your ass chewed before going home, or it was just a two-hour ride of getting your ass just chewed. All the way home, Yes. <laughs> We were. I can just see your father because I've seen you with Joey, <laughs> and there were so many times I watched you just ripping Joey apart, and I'm like, man, I'm so happy that's not me. <laughs> I come by it honestly. I've been trained well. We ran Kokomo one night, and I was qualified to start on the pole. Went out in the heat race, and the heat race really didn't matter for anything. But man, we were feeling good. I mean, the car was good. I was feeling good, and second, third lap of the heat race, I stepped on it and ran over somebody and hung a thing in the chain link fence the outside turns one and two you're sitting in the car and you're looking at the sky because the car's nosed up hanging in the fence on the front axle you're looking straight in the air wait 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 before is this the story where your old man was down on the track screaming don't let him out because i'm gonna kick his ass or something he was back at the trailer actually he was throwing things in the trailer loading up Jim Lipke and Vic Lipke were down on the on the racetrack and they're like unbuckle come on down then we'll get the wrecker up there and set the thing down you're sitting in this thing looking like you're on a space shuttle looking at the sky and I'm like I'm not gonna unbuckle out of this thing because I'll slide on my back off the back of the roll cage I don't have those Carl Edwards capabilities of doing a backflip in midair to get to the ground on my feet so I know I was gonna fall on my head so I told Lipke, I said, no, I'm going to stay here. You set this thing down off, you know, get the roll cage or the wrecker. You set it down on the ground. When it gets on the ground, I'll maybe get out of it then. I said, but my dad's down there somewhere, and I know he's pissed. I'm safer right up here right now, and I'm going to hang here until things calm down. <laughs> and Lipke laughed. He says, you know, that's probably a pretty good idea. I said, if you drop it from the wrecker, it still ain't going to hurt any more than if I f- unbuckle and fall out of here on my head. <laughs> what so, did Bopper say after that? That ride home, was it was just he and I. Oh Susanna had a softball game that day. Mom went to a softball game with Susanna, and they didn't make it to the track. So it's just Dad and I. He didn't say a damn thing. He was silent all the way. I mean, loading the stuff in the truck was in the trailer was. I mean, he didn't care if it was strapped down. It didn't matter. Just get it in here. We're leaving. So we rolled out while the B main was going on, and we headed home. We got home and it was still daylight. Oh wow! Yeah, Mom comes out. She's all freaked out, like, why are you home? You know, you're not supposed to be home for hours. And, yeah, on the way home, to preface this, we got to Westfield, largest Dairy Queen in the state of Indiana, and I couldn't take it anymore. And I looked over at him, I said, I wish you'd just yell, scream, blow up, do something, because the silence is absolutely killing me. <laughs> and he started, and he, hesitated, he checked up and stopped. Rest ride home silent. We get out of the truck in front of the house. Man, I couldn't get in my car and leave fast enough. As he's walking across the front yard, mom comes out. She says, Why are you home? You shouldn't be home yet. And he says, Ask your cussing like hell. Ask your damn kid. And in the house he went. And my dad didn't drink, but I know he went in to get something soda wise. It was hard enough that and uh yeah, he's he calmed down the next day, back to the shop, unloaded the torn up junk race car and uh started working on it putting it back together for the 
for the midweek race coming up. I'm sure there was a lesson to be learned from this, wasn't there? <laughs> okay, I was really dumb because I don't guess I learned all these lessons. <laughs> was that was that in the uh, was that in the car that's behind you in that photo? No, the, the, I, for those who, for those who are just listening in on the podcast, there's this beautiful Gene Cruchin photo of Andy sitting on a right rear. Uh, back good here. hair day. He's going to say, it must have been a windy day. No, I just good. I I had Joey hair back then. My youngest son has hair just like that now. Now, was that the the car that basically ended your career? Was that the one you got hurt in? No, that's a good one. That was the 86 Challenger. Okay. That thing was sweet. Um, I had kind of wondered. I must have torn it up because Susanna must have put some uh, shoe polish 77s back on it because I guess I'd crashed it somewhere and knocked the number off the right rear corner. That's kind of, you know, looking kind of rough there. Normally they were lettered. That car was blue, silver tail, silver down the front of it, black frame. Just cool looking car. We bought that car from Butch Smith, mm-hmm. um, Kentucky engine builder. That was a number 47 car that Kelly Kinzer had driven. And we, I, we heck, I tore up the J&J car I had before that and killed it. So it was at Terre Haute. Um, didn't turn it over and killed the frame. That's talent. That takes special <laughs> skill to do that. So in the panic during the week, um, we needed a new car. So we got hold of Butch. And the following Friday, we met him at Bloomington and brought that one home in the back of the truck, thrashed like crazy, and ran it the following the next weekend, put okay. it together. It was just a basically a kit, frame, body, torsion arms, nerf bars. So we put all our stuff into it and went on racing from there. Painted it because so um, Butch didn't really want us running his paint scheme. He liked his stuff to go fast and not get torn up, I guess. Mm. He didn't want to be associated. So you you officially quit racing from a wreck, right? Is that what put you out? I tore up. I had an 88 and a half Challenger. That was an 86. The mm-hmm. car was great. We ran it through the end of 86, ran it all the way through 87, um, sold it. One of the few cars that I was able to sell. I mean, most of them went to the scrapyard. They didn't make it to the resale visit. You know, they, they were kind from, of from these stories. It pieces. sounds like it. Yeah. So, uh, that one we sold and bought a new 88 challenger and the 88 challenger was the worst race car I've ever driven. And they had me convinced that I kind of forgot over the winter how to drive. Why was it bad? We went to Florida and the car was terrible. Um, it was so bad down there. We put Rocky Hodges in it and he couldn't make the thing go anywhere either. And we ended up blowing the engine, we broke two engines while we were there, and then Dad's trucks. Dad had a trucking company. I did my damnedest to make his business a nonprofit organization because <laughs> I spent everything his trucks could make on race cars. But um, while we were gone, uh, one of the truck drivers had run one of the semis off into a f- overflowed creek, oh, no. river, whatever, trying to get through, and it ingested water. It bent a connecting rod, and while we were gone, that connecting rod gave up and broke, and... So we lost uh, two engines in Florida, and we lost an engine on a truck at home. Not picking on them. It wasn't their fault, but Gertie Engines was doing all of our, Joe Gertie and his dad Earl, they were doing all our engines, a lot of them at the time. And a really cool thing was we could get an invoice from them. It was engine repair. So my two sprint car engines and dad's semi-truck engine all got written off on the books as race car or as uh, all semi-truck engines. Dad's trucks had really bad engine problems at times because, you know, we'd break things and the trucks would, you know, it'd get, they'd get written off as expense against those. But um, that car was, that one was fast. My 88 Challenger, we never got it right. Partway through 88, just past the halfway point, 
Challenger realized that everybody was unhappy. The World of Outlaw guys were first. They got new cars. The, they built an 88.5 Challenger. The guys around the Outlaws all got new cars. The it We were, again, my dad was stubborn. We were determined to figure out what was wrong with the damn thing because if you can't figure it out, you can't make the next one faster. So we're changing mounts, pickup points. We're changing everything about it. We're cutting on that car and changing things and everything. Never could get it right. We changed our setups. We changed everything around. So late in 88, we got the replacement car, the 88 and a half. Went to Bloomington the first night, and I was running second. I clipped a tire in the infield and took an oil line off the scavenge line on the dry sump. Realized what I had done right away because I was smelling oil and I could feel it, and it was all it was spraying around. So shut it off, rolled in the infield. We fixed it, took the wings off of it, went to Eldora the next day, and I was running second at Eldora with Hewitt leading. And the two of us were having a heck of a you know heck of a battle. Hewitt's a hero. And um, Hewitt's a longtime hero. I mean, that guy. <laughs> Hell yeah, I got time for an interview. <laughs> yeah, like a puppy dog. I followed him around. I still to this day think the world of Jack Hewitt. The things I learned from him, like not to drink water because we know what fish do in it. But, and, uh, you know, Wendy's, every time you eat, you, Wendy's always a good choice because that was his favorite. But um, Hewitt was leading. We got to the Greg Staub. Hewitt bonsai underneath him, and I was on the cushion around the top one or two. Stob moved up, got me over the cushion. I got her in the fence and turned it over. Second night out on a brand new chassis, and it broke the roll cage off and broke the car apart. Flipped and um, didn't know it had broken my neck at the time. Didn't know that. Um, knew I had a really bad headache and felt like Albert Pujols hit me in the back of the head with a with a full swing, home run swing. Yeah. It hurt, and uh, so both ambulance uh, infield. Wait, so you broke the cage off the car completely? Completely. And Shoulder harnesses were hooked to the back of the roll cage. Right. Had 35 gallons of fuel in the tank because we had just had a red shortly before. Mm-hmm. So topped it back off, knew where we were on fuel. Um, cage left. Shoulder harnesses were pulling back. Lap belts were hooked to the bottom frame rails. So they the lap belt stayed. Crotch strap stayed. Shoulder harnesses were going with the roll cage, so it kept pulling me up in the car. I kept pulling myself down with the steering wheel because I first time over it hit, and the cage hit me in the back of the head, and I knew it was gone. It blew the hood off of it. And I watched the cage go away as it's folding me over the steering wheel. So I bent the steering wheel down and then butterflied it back up because it pushed down. And then I was pull, hanging on it, pulled back up, and just distorted the hell out of the steering wheel. And it flipped and tumbled. It flipped seven times. My head left marks, the helmet left marks in racetrack. They went back and were looking at those, told me about it later well, on. That my explains eyes were, a lot. Yeah, it does. <laughs> my eyes weren't quite focused on that stuff. Right. So the car ends up on its side on the banking in the middle of one and two. All right. Wilbur Huffman, neat old guy that ran a record truck there, um, come over, he didn't mom make sandwiches. He'd come hang with us and just always around, always parked in turn four with his record, and he was the first guy to get to me. And I pushed back on the steering wheel and opened the whole car up, and the roll cage moves back, seat moves back, everything opens up. And I had enough room to crawl out of it then because it was when it ended up, it had all folded over on top of me. So I pushed Wait, back so when they unbuckled it. you out of the car? No, the- I unbuckled me. But when, okay, when you yeah. unbuckled, did the back half of the car fall off? Well, like, fell were you the leak, the link yeah. holding the car? I was the only thing holding it. There was wow. nothing but seat belts holding the two things together. You're lucky you weren't pulled apart. Just part of being thick. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, well, but hold, just to go a little further, though, uh-huh. to get into this, though, like, from what I had heard, this, and tell me if I'm wrong, from what I had heard, this crash was the impetus for what we now know as the beast chassis today right or it was yeah you get the motivation us, yeah it was dad's motivation because he was a little pissed that this thing came apart as bad as it did and they'd used um we think they used a kneeled 
chromoly tubing. It wasn't conditioned in. It was annealed. So the tubing, it didn't break a weld anywhere. The tubes ripped all the way through the whole car okay. and ripped every tube that uh, let go. And then the rear, rear, rear hoop on that roll cage, this tube right here that comes up and around, that is um, inch and three-eighths, 120 wall on a Challenger. Mm-hmm. That's thick stuff. Right. Bottom rail was 83, top rail was 95, hoop was 120. They made that cage solid, and it broke that 120 tube off like it was nothing to it. So, and there was, was just, they never, I mean, there was never anything fessed up about it or anything else. There was a kid at Knoxville that crashed one of them first, 88 and a half Challenger, broke the cage off of it. They gave him a new car. He put the new car together. Two weeks after his crash, I crashed mine, broke the cage off of it, broke the car apart. Now his, his wasn't as bad as what mine was. Mine was two separate pieces. It was all gone. Um, two weeks after mine, Brad Doty crashed and... Got paralyzed, got hurt, and oh, Brad wow. Doty's crash was pretty famous at Eldora also. So it was one of those batch of cars that yes. paralyzed him. What's really bad about the whole thing is the Wednesday before, they were running World of Outlaws at Knoxville. Mm-hmm. We loaded my 88 car because we had to return it to him in the back of the pickup truck. We loaded my 88 and a half in two pieces, stacked it in the back of the truck, and my headache had calmed down enough that it wasn't absolutely excruciatingly miserable. So Dad and I drove to... Uh, Des Moines, Iowa, where Challenger was. We returned the 88 car to them. And we we rolled in, and we had both cars in the back of the truck, one in two pieces, one in one. And Doty was there because he was driving for Gary Stanton. And Stanton was Challenger car before he sold it to the Annette family. So um, Stanton's there working on his stuff, and Doty comes walking over to say hi to us and see what's going on. Looks in the back of the truck, goes, oh, my God, what is this? And just, yeah, Sure, that thing at Eldora a week and a half ago, and just now getting the cobwebs out of my head where we could return them, bring it over here and show them what happened. Right. Doty turns, he goes, grab Stanton, comes over, and it's Gary. Come, you know, so he brings him over. He says, uh, Gary, well, will our car do this? Gary just shrugged his shoulders, looked at him, like, ah, man, I don't know. So he and my dad go having a conversation, and they go walking off. This is Wednesday. Brad and your dad, or no, Gary and Gary your dad? Stanton and my dad okay. are walking off. They've been friends forever. Stanton worked worked out of our shop when Schumann was driving for him. He was around all the time. I'm another hero I grew up around. Stanton was cool. You know, you don't realize how cool your dad is because you're there with him all the time. Right. And all these other guys come through. You know, Lee Osborne, Gary Stanton, all these all these guys come through that are man. These guys are cool. Man, these are neat. That's dad. You know, he's he's dad. He's right. he's the same guy all the time. He's the guy who chews my ass when I do wrong. Right. These guys are great. They These are the legends. Right These are legends over yeah, here. Yeah. And uh, so they go walking off, have a conversation. Doty, he's talking to me, and we're talking about what happened and this and that. And this is Wednesday night. Saturday night was when Doty crashed, and he got hurt. So let me just a few days later. So there was a few days later. Yeah. Wow. And, and he'd already seen the car in the back of the truck, and I don't know, you know, We've talked about it a little bit. I don't know if that was in his mind at the time or what, but um, you know. So you had you had spoken to him about this after the crash. Yeah. Oh yeah. wow. We've we've talked about it a couple of times, and the biggest thing I wanted to tell him was these things get kind of stupid. Um, Dad's a big tough guy. Mm. I was back in in the middle of a, another miserable headache. They ran in waves. They just like a week and a half long of a of a headache if you put them on a 10 scale you could take three and get rid of it because it never got above a th- it never got lower than a three they stayed a three was the, the best it got and then nine and a half was shaking and kind of so you didn't go to the touch. hospital after the wreck um eldor when you crash there you go to Clearwater, and man i'm gonna tell you what you're better at a veterinary clinic 
because those people are terrible. <laughs> oh, they no. hate racers. They leave you sitting. They're just miserable, and everybody knows not to go to Clearwater. If you're hurt really bad, which I guess I was, but we didn't realize it because I was walking away and too stubborn and dumb to do anything different. If you're hurt really bad and they take you out of there in a helicopter, you get to go to Dayton. That hospital is a whole lot better, but it's quite a bit farther away. So I'd already made up my mind that, you know, and again, I crashed a lot. I got this experience right. down. I know this is going to hurt for a while. <laughs> I know I'm going to have a headache and a concussion. And it's, it's good. So I wanted to go home and have my headache and my stuff in my own bed and not in a miserable hospital bed somewhere. So the medical guys told my mom, God, I love moms. They're awesome. Um, if he throws up, don't let him sleep, first of all, with a concussion. Wake him up. Make sure he, he comes alert. You know, this and that. You can get amnesia, right? Yeah. Well, no. You can you can have brain bleeds and you can die. Oh, okay. So okay. while you're, you know, everybody thinks you're asleep and actually you've passed away and died because of the brain injury of the concussion you can have a you can have a stroke you can have a blood vessel pop oh, you can okay. have all kinds of problems and you can actually die from a concussion when they they think you're just sleeping and oh. when you hurt your head you want to sleep a lot so they told mom wake him up every half hour shake him make sure he comes back too if he throws up he's nauseous anything else his head injury is really bad need to get him to a hospital this and that we drove out of the gate of Eldor. By the time we all piled in, mom, dad, and little sister, and I believe Shannon Saldana was with us again that night. She was Shannon Ridenauer. Didn't even pay attention to Joey back then. Ooh. Now they got it made. Cool family, cool, great group. But um, Shannon was with us too, so I think four of them in the front seat of the pickup truck. Mm -hmm. I laid across the back seat in absolute agony and misery with our family chow dog uh, kind of on my chest and rode home that way. Wow. We roll up out of there. I move the dog to the floor because you roll up Eldor that day. At, at, at that time, you went out the back gate, mm -hmm. turned, went up the hill all the way up and out the gate and out onto 227, and it was like a roller coaster coming home. Driving up out of there, I tell Dad, man, you got to pull over. He moves over to the side, and I open the door, and I'm throwing up everywhere. And uh, Okay. So wow. not to get graphic. Back in the truck, we go. We get out on 227. Man, we're not two miles from the place. Hey pull over so we're off the side of the road again i'm throwing up again climb back in the truck this happens four times we didn't we're not 15 20 minutes from the from the racetrack and i've thrown up everything i have the the fourth time i'm in the ditch i'm puking my granddad had done this to my dad he leans over and does it to me and pardon me pardon my french here but he looks at me he says hey if you uh, throw up something that's hairy and tastes like shit, that's your asshole. You got to swallow that back in. <laughs> I mean, you know how hard it is to laugh wow. when you're in a ditch throwing and up and your kicking. head hurts like it's my football. Yeah, meanwhile, up. you're retching from dry oh, heaves and everything else. Laughing like right. hell at him. Okay, you know, so this, is, this so, is a family race trip. So just to, fa to fast forward a little bit, okay, all of that happens and all that goes on. How does the the birth of the beast chassis begin? Because I had heard uh, this is fill me in, fill in the gaps, okay? I had heard that the beast chassis was originally designed by your dad. Yes, and Bob went to work for you guys, or he was going to build sprint cars and midgets, or you were going to build champ. How how? Who, okay. First off, who originally designed the first car? Dad designed it. On a Waffle House placemat. Now, really? we're not talking glass front Waffle House like we have here in the South. In Indiana, we had a sit-down Waffle House, a little bit more fancy, but regular restaurant. But um, they had these really neat corrugated placemats. 
and we're in there. He was thinking all the time. He was trying to all the time make a better mousetrap. So we're sitting there, and he's drawing out, and he's come up with this. And we're sitting there at breakfast. He because he was pissed about what happened to the he was challenger. he was ill because of yes because of what had happened to the challenger. We put a car together. We finished the year out. Um, after that, we raced the rest of the season. Going into the next year, his jigs had been put away. He hadn't built cars for quite a while. Um, so we drug the jigs back out, and he decided, hell with it, we're going back to building cars because we're not going to have this problem anymore. So he designed, and it was the first one with down tubes, and the center tubes came to a V at the motor plate, made it like a bridge with the truss tubes and everything in a bridge so it was good and strong. You couldn't crush it. You couldn't go anywhere with it. These two coming in at an angle from the back corners of the roll cage coming forward in the front torsion tubes behind those just in front of the engine from that point to the motor plate and the back to the motor plate that had a big V in the center of the car. And then the rest of the car was down tubes and had your upright for your engine plate. And his concept is when you, he's right, when you bend a piece of tubing, you weaken it. So the car had as much straight tubing in it as it possibly could. So he liked, you know, because you do. If you bend a tube, you have to put an upright tube at that point where you bend it or that tube sits there, that bend sits there, and it opens and closes. It moves. Right. So there's no rigidity there anymore. No, I have seen a beast chassis bear, and there's just a lot of triangulation in it. A lot of triangulation. Yeah. So he drew the sprint car up, and Mm -hmm. that was his concept for the sprint car, knew his torsion heights, knew all the stuff. Bob was at Challenger. We'd broken this car. Challenger was building a bunch of midgets. They had a pretty good clientele. Bob was flying back to do the Indianapolis Thursday Night Thunder midget races at uh, IRP, mm-hmm. and and it's always going to be IRP. But uh, <laughs> he was flying back doing those. So we'd pick him up at the airport. He'd stay with us at the house. He'd stay over for a day or two. He and Dad would talk about things, and he told him, he says, man, I'm thinking I want to leave Challenger. I want to do my own thing. So Dad says, well, here you go. This is my concept. This is my print. We can scale this down and we can make a midget out of it. And Bob wanted to do midgets. He was really into midgets at the time. So all he wanted to do was build midgets. And he and Dad had an agreement. We'd build the sprint cars and the champ dirt cars. He'd build the midgets. Okay. And he could move in and do it right out of our shop. We had equipment. We had all stuff there. We were building cars. You guys had no interest in building the midgets? Not really. No, we were busy enough trying to do sprint cars and champ dirt cars. And Bob had the midget clientele. He had all the... He had all the guys. Okay. I my whole time I never ran a midget. I picked on things of my own size, and I was too damn big for a midget. So I always ran the bigger cars. I went from go karts to sprint cars, and we went on. So Bob had you know like I say he had all his Challenger guys, and when he was leaving Challenger, he was going to build the Challenger midget and just continue on, just build his own version of the Challenger midget. Well, Dad shows him this, and way we go he gets started with that it's like yeah that'd be great you know can we do this so mom actually came up with a beast name and she put in the speed sport news the beast is coming she put different ads in she paid for him she put ads in for bob the beast is coming different stuff here and there she'd call corinna konamaki and they'd line this stuff up and they put things in there nobody knew what the beast was but there were ads in there for six months or better before that thing came out that the beast is coming it's kind of cool you know now you look back on it go oh that's that's pretty slick um so we scaled everything down got honest to god that first beast car was built on a sheet of plywood all drawn out full scale we knew the bends of our tubing bender knew the radiuses laid all the tubes out laid out the radiuses figured everything out picked up all the pickup points the arc of the rear end the arc of the front axle mm-hmm. where you put your radius rod points to get the front axle arc to go the way you want to where your rear radius rod points bolt on, where your engine location is, U-joint coming off the back of the crankshaft, torque tube going to the rear end, 
torsion arms as they go. The rear end is moving in a forward arc mm-hmm. off the motor plate. Torsion arms are moving in an opposite arc. You think about it, they're going from the rear and they're they're swinging from the rear mount. The, in, the rear end swinging from the front mount because it's off torque tube coming forward. So mm-hmm. everything has to go together. Figured Jacob's ladder mounting points, figured everything up, shock locations, put everything together on this plywood board, and then built the first frame rails to fit everything on the plywood board. Now, we had to come up above it because the roll cage was taller than the 4 by 8 sheet of plywood. Mm-hmm. So we added on and added on there. and went from there. That and is the half, though. Like, that is the one that half That lays of the one chat. frame rail side uh, down. Okay, yep. and then there's so the other end and they both, come together. both of those the same because mm-hmm. you build them, they're the exact same, they're mirror image. So you build them and just one, when you stand them up, Two sides come together, and then it's just cross tubes in between in the jig. So you stand the two sides up. You can build those and stack them up like cordwood. Stand them up, put the tubes together between them, finish roll cage out, finish all your cross tubes out. Okay, there. so you guys are building the sprint cars and the champ dirt cars. He's building the midgets. Mm-hmm. When when did when did you guys start going in different directions? Bob had midget. Let's do this politically correct the best we can. Bob had midget customers that wanted to get into sprint cars. Some of them we built sprint cars for. Bob also saw the money potentials in building sprint cars himself. So John Bickford and Jeff Gordon had wanted a sprint car. Bob didn't really want to let that one go away, I believe. So he was starting to tell these guys. Because Jeff Gordon was a rising star. Exactly, rising star. Okay. And they had money and they were doing things right. So he had guys that were wanting sprint cars and he started taking orders uh deposits for orders of sprint cars and he started telling his customers said hey if you give me a little bit i'll be in a new shop and we'll start building sprint cars now he was working at our shop and there was not really a rent going on it was a he and dad and bob were really good friends and even when bob drove for a culture out in california he'd tear things up crash cars called i'm gonna fire this kid and dad's like nah send me the chassis we'll fix it we'll send it back keep him in a ride my dad and bob's dad were buddies from the beginning so he kept doing things to help him out. So he's, you know, they ran out of our address so that Ellison, Bobby, and Amy could go to school in Brownsburg schools. So there were, Dad took him to the bankers and introduced him to his bankers and got him hooked up and just all the things through the deal. Um, when Bob started having customers that wanted sprint cars, he saw the potential there and was working on getting his own shop where he could do this stuff. So he got back to us. We had a one of his car midget car owners call and ask us why aren't you building sprint cars anymore? We understand you're just building sprint cars, champ dirt cars for yourself and for your own stuff. You're not building for everybody else anymore. Dad says, no, that's not true at all. That's, you know, no, we're still, we got them stacked up here. We've got cars standing on a rear bumper mounts. These were customers calling your dad looking for a car? Looking for a car, but they had talked to Bob and Bob told them that we weren't building cars anymore for everybody else. We were just building for ourselves now. So Uh. if they give him a deposit, he would, when he got into his bigger shop, he'd start building sprint right. cars and they'd get on the list early. Okay. So dad gets wind of this, finds out it came from Bob. So he calls Rick Carmichael, one of his friends in Indy. Rick comes out to the shop. Our offices were in the front of the shop. Bob's office was in the back of the shop with just off the edge of the fab shop area back there. He had his own section of the shop. So dad had Rick Carmichael call Bob on, you know, you pick up two lines at the same time. So you, you can hear the whole conversation. And Rick was uh, another car owner wanting two midgets, a sprint car, and a champ dirt car. And uh, talked to Bob and said, hey, um, I want to you know, get two midgets from you, and then I'm going to get a sprint car and a champ dirt car from Step all at the same time. We'll 
do this thing. I'll pick them all up at one, you know, if we can get them all choreographed, pick them up there and the whole thing. And Bob told him the same thing. Like, um, well, they're not building for everybody anymore. They're just building their own stuff, but I'm getting ready to build sprint cars and champ dirt cars. So if you'll give me a deposit, I'll get you on the list. He says, I already have quite a few on the list, but I'll get you on the list. And when, as soon as I start building those, we'll get your cars built and get you taken care of. So dad heard enough in that conversation and Rick finishes the conversation up. And then two of them walk down, walk through the shop, walk into Bob's office and he's sitting there behind his desk back kind of happy and proud because he just sold another couple cars, got deposits coming and dad walks up and Hey, uh, Bob, this is Rick Carmichael. He was just so-and-so on the phone with you as a car owner. And uh, I'm a little confused. Why am I not building sprint cars and champ dirt cars anymore? What happened to our agreement? Uh oh. And yeah, that's exactly oh. what Bob did. Was uh oh. He got up and <clears throat> and out the door he left, gone. Left his wife and kids sitting there in the shop, and he jumped in his van and took off. And um, so that night they came back and moved their stuff out middle of the night. A lot of their stuff, some of our stuff, and there was a there was a monetary difference in a lot of things. Um, dad really never cared to pursue all that. It just was really more feelings hurt because his buddy did him wrong. So why not continue to just build cars? Why did he stop? Dad? You, yeah. Oh, we did. We kept building cars. We kept building sprint cars and champ dirt cars also. So they were so basically we the same. Same car. It was the same car. Yeah. Wow. Okay. He was, he had copied our jigs and stuff and knew the, knew the, uh, pickup points and the mm -hmm. size and everything else. And he had done all that. So he moved out, moved to another shop and carried on. He started building sprint cars and champ dirt cars and we continued on. Um, wow. And then they had the speed shop going. We moved the speed shop into the section he was in and had a big speed shop. And, you know, I had complications from my crash that I had headaches and concussion complications. So I gave up after a while. We built uh, Rocky Hodges was one of the Jasper Petit car, um, Gary Hayhurst up in Wisconsin. And we had a Daryl Dodd. We had a bunch of guys that had our stuff, winged and dirt pavement, winged and non-winged cars. And we had quite a few cars out. Um couple champ dirt cars out and dad had his own champ dirt car conroy had one at mahoney jim mahoney drove we had a pretty cool variety of race cars out and bob had the clientele from the midget side and he had the guys that had quite a bit of money and he started going as well and it just went on until we got into other things and went a different direction again i got you Changing the subject a little bit, <clears throat> we're going to have Joe Gertie on eventually as a uh, a guest on the show, um, talking with Susanna. Uh, oh, yeah. I heard a funny story. You might want to save this for Joe, <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is uh, a great We're going to ask him about it, too. <laughs> yes. Um, I heard a funny story about his dad <laughs> borrowing a trailer from you guys, yes. and... Um, well, somebody got their family jewels hurt. <laughs> Fill me in. Absolutely. Fill me in the store. We had an open trailer. We hauled punch, the cars that Puncher drove. Dad's fat house cars around on forever. Okay. Single axle, open trailer. Toolbox on the front, double row tire rack, middle of the trailer. Joe and Earl had a had a really neat hauler and setup, and they sold that one, and were waiting uh, to get their next one built, and that one was running behind. They wanted to keep racing, so... Earl asked Dad, hey, can we borrow, you know, you got a trailer we can borrow? He's like, yeah, yeah. Soaked him up. So this toolbox on the front is kind of neat. It has a lid on it. You put your, your, you can put your toolbox or your tools or your jack and anything you need inside there. Like my little open trailer? Like your little open trailer. Okay. So it's a little triangulated, squared off parallelogram <laughs> toolbox on the front. Well, the tire rack is right behind it. 
In the front row of the tire rack, you feed from the front. In the back row, you feed from the back. End of the night, those hurry-up deals, and Earl swings a rear, left rear tire up. And when he hits the bar at the back, it comes back and hits the lid on the toolbox that happened to be up. And that lid swung around and pushed his belly out of the way, and Earl always wore work pants, baggy work pants, you know, comfortable things. Well, it caught one testicle on the inside of the box and one on the outside, and it slammed down. <laughs> and this box had this little latch that you could put a padlock in and make it safe. Uh-huh. So as it did, the latch cammed over because the thing slammed down hard enough. It swung around and cammed over and hooked on it. Well, there's a little hook on the backside. And Jerry Franklin was there, and Earl's like, oh, can you help? And so Jerry comes running over. So he's caught by his nuts in the trailer. He's caught, yeah. He's scrotum on one nad on the inside, one on the outside, and pinched. Oh, and, you know, you got to consider it's a lip of an inch over the top of it. So Jerry comes over, and Earl's explaining to him what's going on, and Jerry's in a panic trying to help him out, and he's trying to get the latch off. And Earl's like, you got to hurry. I can't stand up any longer. And Jerry looks at him, he says, but I got to push down on the lid to get the latch to release. Earl's, I don't even care right now. Do whatever you got to do. So Jerry pushes down, gets the latch released, opens the lid. Earl's free. He kind of pretty well falls backwards to the ground. And yeah, that's, um, oh my God, that's dad good. still owns this trailer. They have it because dad has restored the cars that Poncho drove for us. So we won the championships with. Right. And they're going to ride around on this trailer as well because that's part of the deal. That's the way they handled the whole time. And they he still have the, the trailer. Still has the trailer. Has it had it all sandblasted? <laughs> I'm totally gonna repainted. Ask, I'm gonna ask John. On this. the lid of the trailer, it has Earl's nutcracker <laughs> painted on it. Uh, Rick Sanders lettered it all on there. He lettered the trailer back up with a Dobbins Chevrolet and everything, and he lettered across the top of the lid of the toolbox. And yeah, Earl, that whole family, the things that we did together through the years, like I say, they did basically 90% of my engine stuff the whole time I ran. Um, 45 minutes to an hour away from us, it was so convenient. If you had an issue, you ain't pop that thing out and go to Gertie's and, you know, tune it, whatever. We plug it on the dyno, get things sorted. We tried some different things at times that we needed to kind of sort through. It was really, I can say it was really never their problem. It was stuff maybe we were doing that we were trying. But um, always had good, reliable, dummy, killer horsepower from them. Yeah. And I mean, just the the Gertie name is, you know, everybody knows it. If you ran sprint cars, you had to have a Gertie engine. Exactly. Sprint cars or stock cars, either one. Right. Earl liked Chinese food. Earl loved, loved different Chinese places. Mm-hmm. Um, he was on the Valvoline deal. Jimmy Reynolds and the guys at the Valvoline at the Speedway would hook him up with fuel and oil and everything for his dyno. So we had one day that Earl was on his way down on a Wednesday or Thursday to pick up an oil, a load of oil. And he got held up, as you do when you own a business. Couldn't get away. So he was running late. So we get a phone call. Hey, is there any way you can run into Valvoline, load this stuff up, and then I'll meet you for dinner tonight, and we'll transfer? Absolutely. I mean, you don't tell Earl, no, that guy's cool. So I ran into Valvoline with a pickup truck, loaded all the gear oil, engine oil, fuel, everything else in our truck. And then when he got into town later on, we met at a Chinese restaurant on the north side of town, one he frequented and liked. And we met there, we had dinner with him and then transferred everything from one truck to the other. And he went back to Rochester. We went back to Brownsburg. (laughs) Well, that went over so well and good little Chinese place. So from that point on, every time Earl needed oil and fuel from the speedway, I mean, shoot, I'd run in and get it and we'd meet for Chinese dinner. It became kind of a little traditional thing. You know, every couple of weeks we'd meet up and have, have a good dinner with Earl and transfer everything over and send him back home. That's cool. Yeah. We're we're going to wrap it up uh, real quick, but before we do, 
looking at you know all the racing that you've done now and, and you know all of the the things that have gone on between your nascar career indycar i mean we haven't even touched on the indycar and the nascar stuff we're gonna have right. to do that we're gonna have to have you back on again to talk about your years working with dale earnhardt and and all of that but man usually i get kicked out of places they don't want me back are you <laughs> sure you want to you need to reconsider <laughs> there's this there's so many great stories i mean we could sit here all day going back and forth but, but we're gonna wrap it up soon but before we go I mean, you've been around the sport for years. What is it that's that's some of the things that the sport's lacking nowadays? I mean, we're seeing decline in ratings. We're seeing decline in uh, attendance at tracks. You know, and, and when I'm not talking about you know the the big stuff, I'm right. I'm talking about racing in general. It's expensive to do, but what's what do you think is lacking in the sport nowadays? It's not so much what's lacking; it's what's overly available. It's overly available with all mean? these kids to sit there with their phones and play video games. Oh. In the old days, there's a few things lacking I'll get you to get you a good answer for. Mm -hmm. In the old days, we had open trailers. You drove through all these little towns with your sprint car on the trailer. Every kid in that town would look you, watch you go by, and you could watch your mouth. Dad, can we go to the races? Yeah. And then the family load up, and they'd come to the races. Dick Bergeron said the best advertisement was an open trailer for Absolutely. a short track racing. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Another genius guy, Dick Bergeron. Yeah. He's, he's been there. He's seen it all. He knows it. So you had open trailers. Then for convenience, we went to, it's all convenience thing. And we went to enclosed trailers. Now you have the semi-trailers and all this stuff. And they have lettering on them. But you don't, the kids don't see what's inside that thing. And it's just not the same. So those kids now, when a trailer goes by, their heads are down looking at a computer or their phone or whatever else. And they have other things on their mind. We, everything developed and changed out. It's, there's so much more entertainment right now. So many more things you can go do. Life gets so full of everything going on and we're just overly stimulated. Back even when I was running, there weren't nearly as many things to do. You go to the races. The people that came to the races knew these drivers because they came to the short tracks and they watched these guys run. Poncho Carter right here on the cover of the Salt City 100. It's a legend. Absolutely. Right there, yeah. I was lucky enough to grow up with him driving dad's race cars. Unbelievable driver. Mm -hmm. One of my heroes to this day, the things I watched him do. You watched him start out in midgets, sprint cars, champ dirt cars, and then the Indy cars. That following that followed him all the way to Indy cars picked him up in the midgets and sprint car days and watched him, knew him, talked to him at the racetrack, went to places to watch him race and the other heroes that raced as well. They had a personal connection to it. Had a personal connection. Mm -hmm. They were friends. They knew each other. You know? So that's what you think we're lacking, that's, that personal connection absolutely. nowadays, right? Dude, I, okay, I did 20 years in the NASCAR world. Mm -hmm. Those guys were better. I did a few years, what, four years of the IndyCar series in the IndyCar world, mm -hmm. five years, somewhere in there. The IndyCar guys, you could watch them at the racetrack on their scooter, and they'd kind of try and avoid and hide from all the fans. The NASCAR guys were pretty good about it early on. Now they just walk by and sign an autograph and hand things back. There's nothing personal anymore because it grew so big. There's so many people trying to get their time. They have things they have to do. They're fine, and they move back. They go to the back row if they don't make it to driver introduction in time. Mm -hmm. well, it's really hard to stand there and keep signing autographs for people when you have to be a driver introduction. You have all these things you have to do. You even have to go through the port of john and take a leak somewhere before you climb in that thing. So they have to have a little bit of time to do this stuff, and the people just go crazy bombarding them with everything and they can't get through to do that on a smaller scale it's nowhere near the pressures nowhere near the schedule it's nowhere near the amount of people 
they, you can have a personal relationship with these guys and get to know them. NHRA may have a lot of problems, but that part of it with their pit area being open to everybody, that's one of the coolest things in racing. I'm a big motorcycle. I love the Supercross. I love flat track guys because sprint car guys have to have heroes too. <laughs> Those guys are badass. So I watch all the Supercrosses. I watch all the stuff. And I will tell you right now, Ralph Shaheen, the voice of Supercross, man, I mean – I don't want to date your show, but he's not doing Supercross right now. And I fast. I've There's a lot of us not doing. Yeah, uh, I record them now, right now, so that I can fast forward through. Because Lee Diffie's very good at what he does, but he's not my favorite at Supercross. So it's lacking. Ricky Carmichael's greatest of all time. He's not as good as an announcer as he was with two legs over a motorcycle. So Ralph had that deal covered. He and Jeff Emig were great. I love that part of it. I like the personal side of a lot of this racing stuff. Um, we had all that. These cars, stock cars, Indy cars, ran on bias supply tires. So personality is what you think we're lacking. Personality is part of what we're lacking. Uh -huh. The racing isn't as good as it used to be. Now everybody says, oh, yeah, it's tighter, it's this and that. We used to have bias supply tires. The guys slide the cars around, took drivers. Mm -hmm. Now I'm so sick and tired of aero-dependent. Even our sprint cars, even our wing sprint cars. Man, I love non-wing sprint cars because there's no aero crap to those. <laughs> it's go get the job done. I've been watching the guys at Bubba. Um, I love watching USAC races. I love going home middle of summer and catching Indiana Sprint Week. I, I did 20 years in the NASCAR world. I wouldn't walk across the street right here if they were paying me $1,000 to go watch a cup race. I'll drive 14 hours to go watch a sprint car race anywhere. Because, and even farther if it's you've, a non-winger. Yeah, you've, you've told me that. I'm, you've been I'm very vocal about it's, it's being easy a sprint enough. car guy and not a NASCAR but guy. I did the stock cars. I saw it all. I saw the greed. I saw the stuff that went on. When you go to a NASCAR race and you take your family, the expenses of what's going, there is no reason for a hot dog or a hamburger to be $8 at any racetrack, and there's no reason for a Coke to be 4 That is just absolutely raping the people that come. And that kind of stuff drives people away because nobody wants to be treated that way. That's a big part of what's lacking nowadays. Go to Eldora. You can, Tony Stewart's got his stuff together. You can go in and get a hot dog and a hamburger for about the same price you could get them for when I drove there. Mm -hmm. And they're good. The food's right. good, and you can go in and you're not getting taken advantage of. You don't have to have these high-dollar motel rooms. You don't have to have all this stuff. You can go, go back dirt track racing. Go back to the roots. Enjoy the people. Have some fun and go to where you can talk to people and go racing. You know, those are... Great subjects, and we are going to talk about them again because we're going to have you back. We'll be, there's so much great material here. We are going to have you back. we got to wrap it up today. want to thank you for coming in on the show. It's really great to have you here and, and definitely going to share some more stories, we hope, in the future. I'm just getting started, but that intro with Grandma, <laughs> we got to get her down here, and we're going to Millbridge, and we're going to put your helmet on her. And we're going to put your helmet on you. She passed away last year, but anybody that knew her knew how fast she drove. Matter of fact, my brother's wedding, or it was my nephew's christening, we told Noki Fanaro, you know, Noki, oh, yeah. you know, legend behind the wheel, following my grandmother to the hall to go have the party. And we said, I told him, keep up with her. And he just looked at me like, you know who you're talking to? Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. called me halfway there. He was like... Holy shit! He's like, I'm gonna call Scrivani and let him let him know that we've got a driver the next time I get sick. 
<laughs> that was just an idea what my grandmother was like. But want to thank you for coming on the show. Andy Stapp joins us here in the studio. It's been a great time. The stories are just amazing. The history that this guy has behind him is unbelievable. And we're going to catch him again. We're going to have him back on the episode one more time. Thank you for joining us on the Derek Pernasiglio Show. And we'll see you for the next time around. <laughs> <laughs>